Welcome to The Brown Girls Journal, a bi-weekly podcast turning our entries into conversations. We are your hosts. My name is Rodlin. And my name is Anushka. And surprise, surprise, you thought you got <laughs> rid of us, but here we are with a surprise episode for y'all for season one. Um, we were so fortunate to be able to interview the Filipina-American poet Barbara Jane Reyes. She recently published um, a new collection of poetry called Letters to a Young Brown Girl. And I don't know if you guys have heard, but this podcast is about brown girls. Um, so it was just <laughs> such a great opportunity to be able to talk to someone that we look up to as young poets mm-hmm. as well. So a little bit of a rundown on Barbara. So Barbara Jane Reyes is a Philippine-American educator and poet based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Born in Manila, Philippines, and raised in the Bay Area, she's the author of five previous collections of poetry. Gravities of Center, Poeta in San Francisco, Dewata, To Love as Aswang, and Invocation to Daughters. Her most recent poetry collection, Letters to a Young Brown Girl, was published in September of this year by BOA Editions. She's an adjunct professor at University of San Francisco's Yuchenko Philippine Studies Program and lives with her husband, educator and poet Oscar Bermeo in Oakland. So welcome, Barbara. Um, we're so happy to have you guys have you on our podcast. And um, do you want to just start by talking a little bit about yourself and your writing and um, what that like? Okay, sure. Uh, thank you both for having me. Um, I think we did meet on Twitter. I've been meeting a lot of uh, a lot of writers, a lot of uh, quote unquote young brown girls on Twitter these days. So <laughs> I'm thankful for that as a platform or a place. Uh, my name is Barbara Jane Reyes. I am coming to you from Oakland. I've lived in Oakland for the last couple of decades. Um, I'm from the Bay Area, but what that really means, people usually think that means I'm from San Francisco, but I grew up in a suburb called Fremont um, that really nobody ever really knew anything about, but these days uh, I guess folks know it as the place where Tesla is located and we're right at the gateway of Silicon Valley. And I think those were... Um, at least with Silicon Valley and, and the fact that uh, Fremont is like one of the best places in the country, allegedly, to, la- to uh, raise your family is something that was very important to my parents, at least to my dad, right? When uh, we were growing up, um, they sent us to private schools and we were supposed to, as uh, immigrants and children of Filipino immigrants, become very like successful and lucrative and uh, prestigious careers. But I became a poet, which is its own, um, I guess, animal. So, um, you know, so I, I, uh, I did go to UC Berkeley. And um, when I decided to major in ethnic studies, um, that's also when I was finding out that I wanted to become a writer, but I didn't know who my models were for that. Um, you know, and so when I was in my late teens, early 20s is when I started to read people like um, Ntozake Shange and um, Gloria Ansaldua and then Jessica Hagedorn and uh, Leslie Marmon Silko as well. So that's kind of uh, an Amy Tan, you know, this kind of pantheon of, of women of color authors that I had available to me at the time and gave me kind of models to figure out how to write 
um, despite not having grown up with role models like that. Um, and one thing that I did learn from, especially like from Jessica Hagedorn's earliest work, um, in particular, this one poetry collection called Dangerous Music that came out on a very, very tiny little press in San Francisco called Momo's Press, was that poetry could come from the streets and poetry could be rough and poetry could be uh, spoken and written and performed in our own um, languages and, and it didn't have to be housed in, in prestigious university spaces. And so that was something that really fueled me and gave me some, gave me some bravery. I was very much in need of that. Do you feel as though you kind of had to excavate to find those like women of color poets to kind of learn how to write from? Was there like tension with wanting to pursue writing as opposed to something more stable or something more mm. approved by immigrant yeah. parents? Yeah, right. I, um, you know, I, I guess part of the beauty of having been in the ethnic studies department at UC Berkeley was that it was interdisciplinary. And mm. so even in history classes and um you know, social science type classes, we were still being given work by very, like, lyrical women mm, of color, mm. right? Um, you know, such that uh, trying to excavate women of color writing became more of an exercise in, like, finding uh, the family trees or the genealogies, mm. right? Like, mm -hmm. um, in one of our... Um, in one of our major uh, requirement ethnic studies classes, uh, we were given Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. So um, those essays were like, wow, oh my God, I need this, right? Um, but then it was like, wait, hold up, hold up. Audre Lorde is a poet. So mm -hmm. now let's start looking for her work, you know? And um, so I was given all of like these clues, um, right? right. Um, I think at that point, because it took me a very long time to finish my undergrad degree, my parents were just thankful that I was graduating, especially from somewhere like Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, that they were um, a lot more vocal about just finish, right, than okay. they were about, mm -hmm. you know, going and pursuing nursing or pursuing accounting or anything mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, mm -hmm. definitely um, as... Um, yeah, as the child of immigrants and folks who hustled, you know, my parents were, oh my God, they, they were just like, just, I feel like all they did was work, mm -hmm. right? That I did feel as though like, there is some kind of obligation to figure out how to, how to make things work so that they don't see me struggling the way they did. Um, mm -hmm. But that came, that came a little bit later. Um, and I think only after graduate school, only after publishing, only after, um, you know, winning an award were they like, oh, well, this is something that, you know, uh, something that is, uh, you know, that we, we can talk about with our peers, mm. you know, about what it is that our kids do. Right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like in my master's program in gender and women's studies as an interdisciplinary studies there are pockets and moments where we are looking at poetry as intellectual work and i mm -hmm. think that that is like a lot of the merit of having an interdisciplinary program mm -hmm. and being able to elevate it to that level absolutely right they um you know because otherwise poetry is going to be always this kind of throwaway thing mm -hmm. you know you write something um kind of uh 
quizzical on the page and, and people go, that's poetry. I'm like, well, it's not really, you know, <laughs> it could be the beginning of something, but you know, don't, don't just look at poetry as this throwaway thing, you know, especially right. in like the Filipino American community, you're all going to be looking at Carlos Belosan. And if you want to know what we are, you know, so don't talk about poetry being, you know, this kind of easy thing when so many of our monumental works are indeed works of poetry. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I'm also kind of yeah. like interested to hear you talk about maybe like the beginning of your writing career because mm -hmm. I feel like that's where we're at. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like you said, like it's hard penetrating these like institutions of writing and like legitimizing your work, I guess. Of course, yeah. You know, and actually I was just listening to your podcast, the one about the byline, right, earlier mm -hmm. oh uh, today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was thinking about, it made me really think about um, how I even got published um, in the first place. Um, and I have to credit a lot of that to this publication called Maganda Magazine coming out of UC Berkeley. It had just been newly formed when I was um, like a freshman or sophomore. And the editor, um, you know, was this, uh, he was a junior when I was like a freshman. And so, you know, it felt very approachable that, um, mm -hmm. you know, he just wanted to do this Filipino um, Filipino American community publication um, and was looking for just people who um, I guess the way he had said it at the time you had something to say you know mm. um, and so there was so little pressure in terms of being literary there it was just am I a young Filipino American that has something to say and I and and there was something so inviting about you know how he had framed it that it was easy for me to just pull out my handwritten poems that I had barely shown anybody except for maybe a couple of my closest friends, you know, mm -hmm. and said, I, I write poems, you know, and I, I handed them to him. And he was like, oh, my God, please come and, you know, be part <laughs> of this thing. So, you know, in that way, it was it was it was very low stakes. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have this idea of being literary, and mm -hmm. it was through kind of learning about um, Asian American movements that came out of the third world uh, uh, strikes here in the Bay Area that I, I came to know about the poets in, in my community mm. and that they were still here and that they were, you know, uh, yeah, they were still here in community that, that um, and that they were accessible to me. Mm -hmm. So I, it was, it was, um, it was really nice to see how they all incorporated poetry and prioritized poetry in their political movements, you know, stuff that, you know, was being read at uh, political rallies and demonstrations and uh, have those as my role models, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so anything that I put on the page and anything that would get published, um, that was kind of the icing on that. And it was so mm -hmm. rewarding to be in this uh, poetry slash spoken word uh, place that really valued the experience of, of uh, hearing the poem performed and, you know, uh, connecting that with a particular event or a particular political mm -hmm. event, mm -hmm. a cultural, uh, cultural event. Um, so that's how I started, which made it kind of like, well, this is just something I'm doing in the corner and unbeknownst mm -hmm. to me, this thing called the MFA industrial complex is happening over there on the other side of the country, right? Um, that, um, you know, the MFA only started to appeal to me 
when I did finally graduate from college and a friend of mine who had worked on Maganda magazine with me in college, we were like, maybe we should take creative writing, right? So we enrolled at this community, Berkeley Community College um, mm -hmm. in a, you know, just a, a creative writing class because we'd never taken creative writing before, but we were just performing gigs all over the, you know, all over mm. San Francisco and Berkeley. And, um, and something clicked in my head. I was like, oh my God, look at this like structure and discipline and the teacher who's telling me, you know, read more Silko, read Myung Mi Kim, read mm. Catalina Cariaga um, and Trung Tran and, um, you know, uh, I love what you're doing with the page, but do more. And hey, have you ever thought of applying to MFA program? Mm. I was like, no, should I? You know, so I, I, I came into it so naive. Mm -hmm. I was so naive, right? Um, and I kind of feel like that worked in my favor, <laughs> you know, like not having all of these expectations of what an MFA is supposed to bring to me. Um, right. So, I, you know, I went into it and I was like, well, you know, I mean, I guess if I get a master's degree, I'd be able to teach as well, right. which is something that I might consider doing at some point. Um, you know, and, and so it was it was that kind of uh, introduction to the world of, of uh, you know, well, graduate poetry degrees and, uh, you know, people publishing um, just kind of out of their own pockets because mm -hmm. it was just really something that they loved. Uh, one of the first places I was published outside of Maganda was uh, Interlope, which mm -hmm. was, uh, you know... I don't know if it was saddle stitch, but it was definitely like DIY. And Sumi Kaipa, the South Asian woman uh, editor and poet, was, uh, you know, she her interest was in avant-garde and innovative Asian-American poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was based in San Francisco, and it was just like, well, she knew Eileen Tabios, and I knew Eileen Tabios, and um, before we knew it, we were like published in this avant-garde experimental Asian-American publication that had some kind of, uh, some kind of reputation because it was, mm -hmm. you know, like, here's the experimental poetry community. I'm like, what is mm -hmm. that? I guess I'm in it now. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of that and looking at where you started with Maganda Magazine and where you are yeah. now, do you feel as though you kind of have to always center your Filipina identity or is that something that kind of comes naturally because mm. it's so central to who you are? Yeah, you know, I think, um, I, you know, I, I get a lot of Philam writers from different parts of the country who, who seem very, very self-conscious about how much Filipino-ness they mm -hmm. are allowed mm -hmm. to write about and it could be because it's so normalized for me being from the Bay Area mm -hmm. um, it could be because my mentors were people who were in the Kearney Street Writing Workshop and uh, you know Al Robles and um, you know that that for me it wasn't really that much of an issue um, mm -hmm. and then I went into ethnic studies and so I felt like I was and I still feel like I am in a bubble you know that's one of the reasons why I do stay here um, mm -hmm. you know in this part of the country um, because it is my home and my family is here, but it's also this really just comfortable bubble mm -hmm. that makes it safe for me to, you know, to try a lot of different things in my writing. Um, but in terms of ethnicity, it just, you know, it's a thing that's there. Mm -hmm. I remember I did a, um, a poetry reading at City Lights when my book Diwatha was released and I was reading, my co-reader was Camille Dungy, and uh, somebody did ask her, 
or ask us both about writing so centrally about our ethnicities, mm -hmm. right? Must she always write about blackness and must I always write about Filipinoness? And Camille said just the most natural thing. It was just like, write about it or not, I'm always going to be seen as a black mm -hmm. person and a black mm -hmm. poet, and I am indeed, so, mm. you know, why not write okay. about it then? And, you know, so, um, so for me it was like, oh, okay. Um, that was also kind of giving me permission outside of my little bubble, mm -hmm. um, you know, that um, other poets, um, other poets go through this too and that they have very, you know, like I thought Camille's answer was like, there was no snark, there was no kind of anything unnatural about how it came out, it just kind of was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well, um, it happens that the things that have inspired me the most to write have been connected with Filipino culture and Filipino and Philam history. Mm -hmm. So I should just keep doing that. Yeah. yeah. There is definitely something so powerful about, you know, that adamant self-assertion, that declaration, here I am taking up space and I'm not leaving. <laughs> mm. Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, it was a one conversation I had with Evie Shockley once we read together at Pegasus Books in downtown Berkeley a long time ago. And she had just, um, I forgot, like, she had just gotten a book contract with uh, like Rutgers, you know, I can't remember mm -hmm. what press it was. And, um, and I asked her like, you ever get that feeling that we're in these places where we were never meant to belong? And she was mm. like, oh yeah, isn't it sweet? It's sweet, mm. right? Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a dark underbelly to that as well, the kind of blowback you get from folks who feel like because that's not your space, that is therefore my space and you are taking it from me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I didn't take anything from you, right? Um, I, I, I made it here, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's another story altogether in terms of like, oh, you know, who's this Filipina writing about mm -hmm. Filipino things in Poetry Magazine? Why is yeah. she there when I should be there instead? I'll be mm -hmm. like, well, you know. Uh, I don't know, write some poems that will be interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like sometimes even just like existing as like a brown girl can just be like a lot for other people. Oh, yeah. Like, um, hello. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, right? I'm right here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? And it's like I'm writing and I am, you know, hustling, mm -hmm. you know, in this publishing world to, to, to get some poems placed in some places, big, small, whatever. And, um, you know, and sometimes I'm very surprised about where my work has taken me. Um, mm -hmm. But I, and I don't want to say that and, and, you know, put on this air of false modesty, because I also know I, I, I work pretty hard, you know. Um, and so, you know, so when that kind of backlash comes, I'm always like, you know, this is, this white privilege is so, it's so exhausting, you know, mm -hmm. that we have to kind of keep justifying our existence, not even at the center of the thing, but kind of crawling around the margins, we still have to justify our existence there. Mm -hmm. um, and when we start doing that, uh, you know, as, as a community of, of uh, folks, of uh, different communities of folks of color going, well, we really are here, look at us, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, it, I feel like there's a, there's a kind of violence that we're, we're um, participating in, right? mm -hmm. having to, 
having to say, look at us, we're worthy too, you know, right. and have that be kind of our stance, mm -hmm. our public stance, you know. Yeah, I'm even thinking about, I think it, I believe it's in A Litany for Survival when Audre Lorde says we were never meant to survive, and mm -hmm. just thinking about the hustle as a form of survival, but then also thriving in those spaces in which you weren't meant to be, quote unquote. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that line. Um, and then also from Lucille Clifton, right, that won't you celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me mm -hmm. and failed, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's beautiful. And I'm just like, let's let me not be dramatic about that, because I'm sure that <laughs> nothing has tried to kill me today. But, you know, if I take that line poetically, right. um, you know, that something has tried to undermine me, erase me, silence me, you know, um, kind of write me out of existence and mm -hmm. I am still here and I'm still going to kind of keep doing this, you know, yeah. until I have no books left in me to write or mm -hmm. I have no breath left in me, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, yeah. maybe we could talk a little bit about your book. Sure thing. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about like what brought you to writing this piece because I think we're also just really interested because you've written so much and so like vastly like what made you now want to dedicate like this collection to like proudly proclaim you know everything in the title itself even mm -hmm. yeah you know that's a, a really good question and it's something that other um, folks have been asking me like this book seems to be really kind of um, already sticking with a lot of brown girls from different places and it is because it's so explicitly directed to you know, if you see, uh, you know, any any glimmer of yourself in, in the descriptor and then in the content of the work, that's like, oh, my God, you know, somebody wrote this, oops, somebody wrote this, you know, with us in mind, um, mm -hmm. which is something that does not typically happen in this industry, right? Um, and, you know, a few things have, have definitely happened, um, and I'll say a few things about my history in, in, in publishing that kind of gets me here. Um, you know, when I first started, like, with book publishing, it was just kind of, you know, again, in the vein of these Kearney Street Workshop poets who were these Philam poets who, like, dropped one book and... Um, and then, you know, these works kind of just became part of, you know, part of our community, like, memory and mm -hmm. document. And, you know, I'm thinking of, like, Jaime Jacinto, Jeff Tagami, Virginia Sereno, and then Al Robles, right? Like, drop one book and boom, that was that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was for the community and it was just so personal and, and beautiful. And I, that's kind of just what I wanted. So when Archipelago Books, who was this literally one woman show um, in the South of Market area of San Francisco, one Filipino running a bookstore, uh, wanted to start publishing work and said, have you ever thought about publishing a book? And I was like, at some point, sure, yeah. And she said, well, I, you know, I would be very happy to publish you. I'm like, oh my God, if something mm. is falling into my lap, I need to not not do this um and so it was like you know it was so it was just so personal and so um you know just it felt like home you know mm. to just kind of do this thing um and then when I, I 
Um, and then when I wrote and got um, Poeta in San Francisco published, all of a sudden there was a big world of people who were looking at me and my writing and really picking it apart and attacking me um, because it, uh, again, it was a space that was supposed to belong to somebody else, mm -hmm. right? Um, that Academy of American Poets space does not belong to you. You don't belong there. I was literally like told at the um, at the awards ceremony by other poets there. You don't belong at this table, you know. Um, literally at a table where we were all supposed to be having oh a gosh. celebration together, right? And so, um, and the only poet that was there that was, you know, kind to us at the kind of smaller celebration was. D.A. Powell, Doug Powell, who is from here, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like not a coincidence that somebody from San Francisco would be the only kind person to me in this place. Um, but yeah, I was told literally I did not belong at this table. I, you cannot sit no. here. Um, and so I think that that really, you know, it made me build up these walls and it really mm -hmm. made me kind of look at my poetry and how to fortify my poetry and how to write a kind of poetry that was so-called acceptable to mm -hmm. um, the literary establishment, um, which is not to say that that work is not good and that work is not something I'm proud of, right? Mm -hmm. like, um, but I, I realize now how conscious I was of how I was creating a, a poetic persona mm -hmm. and poetic speakers who were just so crafted and, uh, you know, it was a version of me, but had all of these kinds of layers like literary layers mm -hmm. uh, to her, um, which were great in terms of an exercise, but I feel like that's what kind of, um, you know, made me feel like, well, how come my people in my own community aren't reading me anymore? You know, it just mm. made me feel really sad to feel disconnected from that. And I was like, you know, at first I was like, oh, well, they can't handle that I'm writing something more sophisticated. But then I realized it was because they weren't necessarily seeing themselves as the addressees mm -hmm. of these poems, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they weren't really seeing, you know, me, Barb, as the, as the speaker to, you know, addressing them in these poems. Um, and I was like, I was sad about that. I, mm -hmm. You know, that was not why I started writing and publishing, you know, to... Uh, you know, to be in this world over there when people were telling me I didn't belong there. Why was I trying so hard to belong to them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it became easier along the way to just kind of like, okay, now I feel like many years removed from that experience and really kind of finding my community here and feeling more kind of grounded uh, in my own life. And now I'm teaching in Philippine studies, you know, and, um, you know, and, and really kind of spending a lot of time with uh, young brown girls who were very much like myself uh, when I was their age. And what is it that when I was 19 I needed? And what was I looking for? And who mm -hmm. was I looking for? Um, what did I need them to say to me? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yeah, I keep going back to this memory of one semester I happened to be um, teaching Penilet class, which, you know, I've been doing now for almost a decade, I think almost. And, um, you know, one semester I happened to have like a certain group of Filipina 
students who just, um, you know, they'd sit in the front row and they would hang on my every word and then they wanted to stay behind and spend time with me and ask me more questions and just hang out. And, and I really, really loved that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I am now in this status where, you know, they're calling me Ate, right? Mm -hmm. Elder sister. Mm -hmm. um, that's so familial. That isn't professor anymore, which is formal, right? But, um, you know, it really kind of got me thinking seriously about like, who am I here for, mm -hmm. mm. right? Who am I here for? Who am I mentoring? What do they need from me? Um, what would I tell them, mm. you know? And in, included in that them is 19-year-old is me, I guess. So it was like, you know what? I, just, just write, just write. Like the way that you would write to yourself, the way that you remember yourself when you were that age and needing so much from somebody that wasn't exactly there because maybe they just didn't exist yet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like that's so powerful too. Just mm -hmm. even like the way you talk about your writing career, I feel like that is really humbling because even to hear, because I think not a lot of people would admit like, you know, recognizing like, oh, like who am I writing for? And like, mm -hmm. what do I want to keep doing? And like, what is actually important in my writing to keep growing? Yeah. I just think that's so cool that you like think about your audience so much because I feel like I've always thought about like who am I writing for and I don't know if I've always just thought about that because I am like a brown person and like a female and like part of the LGBTQ community so I just have always like you know been really invested in like what is my writing doing mm. not that it like can't just exist on its own and like be beautiful but um yeah I think it's it's like really cool to hear that from somebody else as well um yeah, I don't know, Ruthven, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like, in terms of just thinking about wanting to or have feeling like you have to be accepted by the institution, right, and having to make your voice so mm -hmm. small, the speaker in Letters to a Young Brown Girl, her voice is not small at all, right? So <laughs> you say in, like, the synopsis, the brown girl of these poems is fed up with being shushed, with being constantly told how foreign and unattractive and unwanted she is. Then you go on to say she's raising her voice. Um, and I think I'm just curious about that rage and the layers of rage in this book and how, you know, it grates against maybe Filipino femininity and what the institution is expecting of you. So yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, there's so many layers there, right? And and rage rage is like, well, that's that external manifestation of, of whatever has been happening and building up inside mm -hmm. the self or the eye or the body. Um, you know, and that uh, for me, a lot of that rage has to do with sadness mm. and grief and, mm -hmm. um, you know, never ever having an acceptable outlet of any kind, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's why I talk about the diary, you know, that at the same time that as girls, we are given these places to express ourselves. These are private places with locks and keys mm. that you're not supposed to share mm -hmm. with the outside world. Right. You can't just walk into a room, much less a public space, and say, this is what I think, this is what I believe. So it's weird, right? Like, yes, it's important. People recognize it's important for you to express yourself, but you can only do it in the confines of this tiny little locked space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that that is a gendered thing. And then you add that layer of, of uh, 
you know, immigrant experience, and then that layer of, of brownness, mm-hmm. right? So-called otherness. Um, and uh, one thing that I keep talking about with my students, because this comes up a lot, you know, if you're reading like Leslie Tenorio or, you know, um, yeah, mostly him, I feel like it's come up a lot um, in, in his work, where you have these characters who look like they have been taught all their lives as immigrant kids. You keep your heads down. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. call a lot of undue attention to yourself, and you just grind away, mm-hmm. right? You work. Um, and then, um, you know, anybody who does not do that, it, you know, that's a transgression, and mm-hmm. you are going to get punished for that, whether it's, like, personally punished or socially punished or you know, anything like that. And so, um, you know, where does all of that pent up everything go? Um, you know, and I think that's why a lot of us do when we finally do, uh, you know, go into something like a spoken word scene or, you know, open mics or whatever, you see the boom, all that, all of that kind of explosion. Um, and then for me, you know, having gone through, you know, many years of doing uh, more kind of spoken word, uh, you know, type of poetry. It was like, okay, now, now that I've gotten a lot of stuff out of my system, I, I now have a space to look at it mm-hmm. and kind of think about all the different layers of, of stuff I am trying to say, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay, yeah, I'm Filipina. Yeah, I'm angry. Okay, that's a good starting point. Now let's kind of start mm-hmm. kind of peeling the layers of that. Um, a couple of things, I guess, historically and, and socially with, uh, you know, the Filipina femininity, what are the, the virtues and the models that we have? And Maria Clara, you know, is a character that makes herself uh, known in, in this book um, that we don't really think about where she came from. Mm. You know, she is a product of colonial rape in a novel that was, uh, you know, that was written by somebody from, you know, our, uh, you know, elite classes and, um, you know, and, and um, I really have a problem with Maria Clara mm. being the thing to which we should aspire mm-hmm. to be. Um, we are supposed to be obedient. We're supposed to be self-denying. We're supposed to be, you know, um, unquestioning and whatever it is that we want for ourselves um, if that goes against what our elders wishes are we have to uh, subsume our true selves right Um, that's not something I'm down with right Um, and so I'm like let's look for some other models Mm -hmm. of Filipino women right Um, and so that's why I'd been reading a lot about um, you know uh, Babylons and Aswans mm, and mm-hmm. you know like what what are our other models of right. women why can't women be wise and why can't women be leaders mm-hmm. and why can't women be monstrous and uh, you know transgressive and, yeah. and unabashedly so mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm even thinking a lot about in terms of how Asian Americans have been taught that they are allowed to exist um, mm-hmm. Kathy Park Hong's minor feelings um, and how it's all about keeping your head down and you know this is we have been given this opportunity to climb up the ladders in America, but this is the one they, one way that you do it. Um, and I, I always think of like, what, what is whiteness gatekeeping? What is it that they're afraid of? That if we are to express our true selves, that what would happen, you know? How would America <laughs> mm-hmm. and the world be different? 
Yeah, uh, there would have to be a lot of soul searching, you know, um, and not just on our parts, right? I mean, white supremacy is a thing that is always taking up all the air in the room and all the space in the room. And um, why do we have to be okay with that? Why do we have to arrange our lives and our behaviors and our careers mm -hmm. with that as the model, right. with that as the field, you know? Um, why can't we do something else? Right. What does that something else look like? Mm -hmm. Where do we even start? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I also like, I think just from the standpoint of being a very emotional person, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, reading all these poems, like I had to, you know, take a break and yeah. then come back and then like, you know, obviously reread and like digest. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like, what it was like for you to even mm, write these and mm -hmm. I know you talked a lot about spoken words mm -hmm. so I think that's like awesome because I've heard a lot of different poets different thoughts about spoken word and then like translating that to the page and I kind of just wanted to know like what that experience was like kind of translating you know something that you're used to being heard and then having that same emotion on the page as mm. well yeah right so here you can't hold back on language mm. um i think is one thing um because uh you know it, subtlety is good and there is subtlety in in a lot of the poems here but you kind of have to look right mm. if can you handle like the the high amplified mm. volume that this that the speaker is speaking at you know um and and when you do get to the place where she stops shouting for a minute and then kind of goes you know, dear brown girl, nobody was ever reading your poems and, you know, and, and mm -hmm. now you're in this kind of moment of reflection. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh my God, I, I have to kind of figure out like, you know, I, I have to figure out what happened there with all these different ranges of, of emotion. So the, the language, I'm very, very uh, conscious of how aggressive it is in places and that's very deliberate. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of where it was that I even got brave enough to, to write with such aggressive language. Um, and maybe part of it was my uh, teacher in um, creative writing at, at Berkeley Community College, Berkeley City College, where, you know, I, I, one of my classmates was using the word fuck in one of their poems, or maybe it was me using the word fuck in one of my poems, I don't remember, but like um, my teacher, Elizabeth Treadwell, she just said, it's just language. It's just language, right? There are no right and wrong words here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just the value that we place upon them. Um, you know, and what, what words do we feel like we do and do not have permission to use? Mm -hmm. What words are ours to use? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, there are words that I won't ever use, uh, like the N word, for example, is not a word that is mine to do anything with, but let it be the word of the, you know, of the folks who want to claim it. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so I, I felt like I can step outside of this kind of Maria Clara image or this obedient immigrant daughter, um, you know, image that, that I've been, many of us have been uh, living our lives in for however long, and that has been our worldview. I can step outside of that, and it's okay, um, but I have to feel safe enough um, to do so. Um, so I think a lot of it is that, like, am I, do I feel safe enough to even write these poems mm. such that even if there is blowback, 
I'm going to feel okay. Not exactly water off a duck's back, but I'm still going to be okay, right? I definitely did not feel that safe before after mm. folks started tearing me down after um, Poeta in San Francisco. Mm. Um, but I've had decades between that and, and this uh, to kind of just find uh, where my community is and people who, uh, you know, for whom this is important enough to, to actually use real uh, language with. And, you know, I can still use high poetic diction. I can still write very poemy poems. And I can also write poems that are in this more aggressive, more natural language. Mm. Um, that we have range. We can do whatever we want with the language. Yeah. That is a hard road getting there, for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and even thinking about you now being a more seasoned poet, you're writing mm -hmm. a lot about girlhood in this collection, right? Um, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about Olivia Gatwood's poem um, called When I Say That We Are All Teen Girls and how she speaks mm. to that universality of girlhood and the emotions that we feel during that time in our lives. Mm. Do you think that that's something that you're also speaking to? Um, I think about, oh God, yeah, adolescence is... is uh, Adolescence is some of the hardest and most awful stuff we'll ever have to live through, mm -hmm. right? I, um, I say this now, not having become an elderly person with you know another <laughs> set of concerns, but thus far, it has been one of the worst things that um, I and many people have had to live through mm -hmm. because, um, you know, obviously adolescence is, is a time of radical change, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, one thing that I, I've been kind of thinking of also as like what it was like to be a teenage girl where everything is, you blow everything out of proportion. And part of it is because your hormones are not something you understand. And part of it is because you're trying to learn what freedom is, mm -hmm. right? And, and how to be independent and I'm grown. And your parents are like, no, <laughs> no, no, you're not, right? So there's that power struggle going mm -hmm. on where you're, you're, you're asserting your independence, you're testing uh, what is out there. Um, but then you're also like, you know, the, the other part of, of um, realizing that you're becoming a grown person is like, you know, how, how do I want to be regarded and viewed and seen out there, right? We are these invisible things until we're not. Mm. Um, and um, what does it mean for a brown girl to be visible? Or what mm. does it mean for a teen girl to be visible? I was talking to Janica Martinez, who is uh, one of the writers or editors for Tusk Magazine, and uh, we were talking about, um, I was, I'm thinking back to the poem where I'm saying, you know, I wanted the tattoos and the rockabilly hair, and I wanted the David Bowie cheekbones, and I said, you know what it is now that I'm thinking? I wanted to be the rock star, because that is not what we as girls are taught mm. to be. We are taught to be the video girl. We're taught to be the groupie. Mm. We're taught to be this body, mm -hmm. the sexy body. Um, but we are never, you know, the, the person creating the art. We are never the mouthpiece. Mm. Um, you know, we're never the one who is appreciated for our creativity or for our skill as a musician or as an artist or, or a, a creator. Uh, of anything like that. Ironic, right? Because we're also viewed as these bodies that are supposed to be creating other bodies. Mm -hmm. So, um, so these things are happening simultaneously. We're giving 
we're getting these mixed messages about what we're supposed to be as bodies, um, you know, viewed and ogled after and desired and, uh, you know, violated and, uh, you know, just uh, you're supposed to bend to the whim of, of uh, whatever it is uh, society wants us to, to be and do for, for it. And, um, yeah, it felt like to be the rock star was like an ultimate rebellion mm. against that, mm. right? So maybe in that way there is a kind of universality to it because we are kind of trying to decide what to do with our bodies. If we even have, if we even have a, the tiniest bit of autonomy to mm. make that decision for ourselves. So how do we take that back for ourselves as opposed to just kind of letting society decide that we are going to be, you know, these these things to be kind of, ogled at and objectified mm. right yeah um yeah 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 like I yeah the first thing that came to mind um was even just like the concept of being a muse mm. and like how women are like you know you're always the inspiration but like I just loved what you said about like we can be like the creators mm -hmm. as well you know um yeah and so the second section yeah. of this collection of work is actually called Brown Girl Mixtape. Yeah. Um, and um, so each, just for our listeners, each poem explores mm -hmm. a different song. And just like as a huge like music buff myself, mm -hmm. even though I hate calling myself <laughs> that because everybody's always like, eh, so pretentious. <laughs> but, so much um, pressure, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Then you have to know everything. Um, but um, yeah, just as a music lover, I'll say, um, I really love this section. And I was really interested in like how you chose each song because I started what I started doing like as a reader just to like, I don't know, I wanted to like immerse myself more because I would like play the song and listen to it and then read the poem, um, which I think is cool because I feel like, you know, music can give you like a whole new layer of like meaning to your work as well. Um, yeah, yeah, so I just wanted to like hear you talk about the experience of uh, adding that layer. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for telling me about your reading experience. I love when people, are, you know, they, they talk about their reading experience and it is something that like, you know, is different for everybody, right? Um, <laughs> But I love that. And actually, you know, it's funny because the mixtape section, though it is literally the center of the book, it is also the last piece of the mm. book that I wrote. And I think of it as the most rough mm. um, or the most raw piece of the book. And maybe it is appropriate that that is what, you know, that is what it is, um, that it appears the way it does. Um, yeah, right. I, I was thinking, too, that, you know, the mixtape, you know, decades ago when we were still all on vinyl and had cassette tapes, right? It was a very tactile process that, you know, you had to find all of the different pieces in all of these different places, your friends' record collections and your sister's record collections and, you know, maybe the public library. And if you were lucky enough, you'd go to the record store and be able to pick up stuff there too, right? So you're pulling all these pieces out of all of these different places and uh, making some kind of coherent body out of it. I feel like that's a lot of our experience making mixtapes was like, well, this is how you order poems in a book from beginning to end, right? So let it not be said that we were never trained to do that, right? But um, so anyway, I, um, you know, I was thinking about just the fact that when, um, let me go back a bit too, it, on um, record store day, because I guess Record Store Day is a thing, right? Um, I was listening to U2 Radio on uh, Sirius, 
you know, satellite radio and, and some folks were talking about their experience going to the record store and why it was these very sacred places to them, right? Mm. Um, and um, it, it was places where you were discovering new sounds and new ideas and new artists and what is it that people are creating? What are people like, um, you know, what are their messages in the songs and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And it, it made me think like, about how for me record stores were these places that I would go and just spend all this time just going through you know like going through the crates and trying to find these you know different kinds of sounds and and ideas and um, and um, a lot of people thought it was like a waste of time the kind of time my friends and I spent in record stores it was like shouldn't you be doing something yeah. constructive with your time instead of you know wasting your time in record stores and I'm like well you know many decades later I think about how those places are as valuable as uh, bookstores and libraries and art museums and these are places where you are trying to grow your world and form your own ideas and uh, you know find your culture mm -hmm. right um, so for me I feel like that's what the sentiment of mixtape is like um, that it's has been kind of this ongoing process since middle school, mm. you know, to to uh, to figure out what my culture was, and mm. of course I don't just mean American culture or Filipino culture or Philam culture. I just mean what is my personal culture, um, you know. And so these, um, so that I guess is the larger idea of the mixtape, right? Is just the time spent. Uh, with music and with musical artists and their sounds and their ideas. But as far as each song goes, you know, I feel like it harkens back to a lot of time spent with the brown girls I grew up mm. with. You know, that, you know, these uh, love thirsty girls and, you know, so much aching and so much want and that thing we couldn't name. Uh, was out there in the world that we were still kind of looking for, and I, you know, I, I remember doing things like listening to uh, Bow Wow Wow, and seeing Annabella Lewin, you know, this Burmese girl in a punk rock, yes. you know, like f the, at the forefront of a punk band in Britain, and you know, and um, just really having these feelings that I didn't know how to name yet, whether it was empowerment or whether it was like I feel strong or I feel you know, scene, or mm. I feel, you know, something like that was happening. And so um, I, I feel like the mixtape is also a letter mm. to brown girls, right? This is how we expressed ourselves to our best friends, right? We'd mm. make them these music mixes, and we would create the kind of uh, liner notes and cover art that went inside those cassette inserts and give them to one another for birthdays and you know things like that and we'd mark events like that um, you know so I I, um, I really loved that um, it's not really exactly the same having a Spotify playlist <laughs> right uh, yeah. right um, and you know and even when I started like uh, you know downloading stuff from iTunes and creating mixes that way it wasn't exactly the same either mm. um, but you still go through a process of discovery like listening and thinking about who these people are and what is their sound and what are they you know yeah just what's happening in this in this music um, so I feel like every every piece of my life there's something like that happening whether it is middle school with Bow Wow Wow or you know um, college with all the Mary J Blige in the world that always brings me back to this house I lived in with 
um, you know, my girlfriends in South Berkeley, you know, where after work or after classes, we would get together in the living room and the table would be overflowing with all the old red wine bottles and all the cigarette butts in the world. <laughs> and that's just where we decompressed and, you know, like uh, shared our lives with one another. And, um, you know, and that they were always marked by music. There was always Mary J. Blige there. There was always Faith Evans there. Somebody, you know, somebody like that. And even up till now, I think I'm having moments mm. like, what? Why am I only learning about Fanny now? <laughs> those, you know, those older Filipino, older now, but in the 70s, they were these young Filipino women who were like rocking out, and David Bowie thought they were like the best. And I only found out about them a couple years ago, and I'm like, this is an injustice, man. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's like such a, like, I love the way you describe, like, how that's even like a tactile like activity mm -hmm. and then it just becomes like a, a deeper intimacy mm. that you can like share and like a collective experience even yeah. of like sharing music too and like you said even just like discovering artists is so fun yeah because you're yeah. like wow now I have a whole new world to exactly. explore yeah, yeah yeah totally and and I remember um I don't know why Fanny all of a sudden people started learning about Fanny but even my my editor at City Lights one day I walked into the store and he was like Barbara Jane, I need to ask you, do you know Fanny? This is so important. And I was like, dude, I just learned about them. What happened? Why do we all know about Fanny now, right? Um, and I'm glad we do, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it, it's so funny that people kind of also, they know that music is the way that, uh, music is, is this way of connecting and saying, there's this world mm -hmm. that I think is just really important and this feels like something that, that would mean something to you. Right. I was like, oh, I guess my editor and I are friends now. If he thinks of me in this way. Yay. You know? Yeah. 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 I even just love the notion of becoming as like a collective experience from like girlhood mm. to womanhood and how I think that that's something you're also guiding people into in this book as well. Yeah, I think so. Right. Becoming. What does that mean? Becoming what and going where? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, um, that's the place where I think it's like, you know, we, we need to form our own ideas. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we're only going to get to the places that have already kind of been there and inhospitable to us. And, uh, you know, um, totally misogynist and totally white supremacist. And, you know, are we just going to let our sisters like right. walk into these spaces mm -hmm knowing the kind of harm that is going to come to them, how can we even prepare them for that? Right. You know, I mean, I'm not a mother, but I'm thinking about, you know, the kind of tough love that my mom gave me when she was younger than I am now. Right. Um, that, you know, the reason why my mother was such a, Oh my God, she's so tough. Right. But I feel like now I understand that she was, trying to tell us without telling us the world out there is shit mm. it is going to really mess you up you know so you got to be tough as nails mm -hmm. right um so i'm like okay um i don't have daughters i don't have kids to impart that upon but you know now that people are calling me ate out there in the community what what would i want to know from my mm -hmm. ates in in community right yeah yeah this collection is definitely armor for the world that is <laughs> yay i love yeah. this thank you so much oh my yeah, god of course yeah. yeah um yeah i guess that leads perfectly into our little nook section uh -huh. so again for our listeners who 
are like new to our podcast basically our nook section is just like a little cozy corner where we kind of get a little more more intimate mm-hmm. um so you know kind of wrapping up the conversation about your collection I think this third section was personally Rodlin and I like our favorite um, because like um, like we were kind of talking about it has more of like a at least what we kind of felt like I think all of the sections were very intimate but I think this section specifically it was like you were directly Mm -hmm. talking to us as a speaker and like an older sister Mm -hmm. who understands our pain and it was like very confessional tone Mm -hmm. which I think just made it seem that much more genuine and sincere and like you kind of like understood um so I guess in that vein of intimacy um what was your favorite poem in the collection to write and would you be open to maybe reading it for us to end the episode absolutely yeah oh my god thank you yeah right I I was thinking about like um there's a couple of different uh women who after they read my book they put up on social media Barbara Jane how dare you see me (laughs) right like um, exposed you know like have have you ever had another uh you know an uh author a woman author of color actually you know you know, write a work that's like, I see you, mm-hmm. right? And and I feel like, I mean, they are out there, right? I wouldn't be here if it weren't for people like, um, you know, the work of Gloria Anzaldúa and, you know, mm-hmm. Jessica Hagedorn, et cetera. But, um, yeah, but it's like, well, this is directed to me. I'm a brown girl, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I had one of my students come up to me, not even a, a brown girl, it was a Pinoy in my, one of my MFA classes I taught. And after I read from this, he was like, Professor, can I be one of your brown girls too? I'm like, of course you can. Yes, absolutely. Um, Okay, so I'm looking at, you know, there's so many like different tones in these uh, Dear Brown Girl letters. Um, You know, uh, one of them I did write when I was hiking in a place that was entirely populated by these uh, manzanita trees Mm. that were, um, you know, they're... um, dark red and smooth and hard wood on the you know on the outside and that's because like here where California is always on fire these these uh these trees survive because they're so tough and they can survive in drought um you know and they're just so gnarled and beautiful looking um so uh there is a brown girl poem on page 54 um okay dear brown girl What is there to fear in your silence? When you do not speak, do you hear your own footfalls, your breath, your measured gait? Can you feel tension and give of earth with every step? Can you feel how terrain changes underfoot? What does this tell you about the sprawl and tangle of roots, about seeds that open only fire, open only when fire comes? What happens when you pay attention? What happens when you step outside of words? What do you learn about heartbeat? Can you hear the single leaf fall to the soil? And when there is rustle through limbs, through hollowed trunks, do you know what living thing moves into the underbrush? Can you see its tracks? Can you catch its scent? If you know how to listen, There is an entire language of water and earth, wings and husks and legs, heat and birth. What do you find when you sit with yourself inside your silence? And I think 
maybe the last one thing I'll say about this poem is this is one of the only poems I think that actually talks about not speaking mm. right mm -hmm. everything else is about speak shout yell you know and then this one is like right like but not like a I'm shushing you mm -hmm. more like what do you hear what do you hear right um it's those moments when you're like somewhere when you are out in the woods and you hear absolutely nothing right it's like what's happening here now you have to kind of sit with what that means you're being in that space anyway yeah yeah and I'm even thinking about like who are you when there's no one else telling you who to be you know mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. oh yeah absolutely right now is your moment to kind of decide what how how you how would you answer that question right, right? Uh, whose mm -hmm. set of def definitions will you use even right um, yeah yeah oh, I love that so much yeah mm -hmm. uh -huh. and it is kind of like a nice like respite as well mm -hmm. like within that last section because it's like you know you're feeling all this adrenaline just even like going through all these emotions mm -hmm. and then it's like oh like I can also take a breather mm -hmm. and then that itself is like a whole exploration too Absolutely. I love that and I love yeah. that we're ending the podcast like this oh, um thank you yeah. yeah it was so nice obviously having you on and you're always welcome back <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> for you. your next yeah. collection <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my god yeah. <laughs> i'm so yeah. totally writing nothing right now and it feels kind of good too so yeah yeah thanks so but much for yeah. coming on and thank you folks yeah. for having me oh my gosh this is so great i really appreciate it Okay, um, snaps, first of all. That was actually amazing. Um, Barbara is so wise. I literally think I have to like go lie down for a little bit. Usually that's a bad thing, but right now it's a very good thing. I need to just like soak in all her wisdom. I'm just like, fuck, like maybe I should write. Maybe I should follow my dreams. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, I think like, you know, we were even talking like, after the episode ended with her like this is maybe what we needed yeah throughout all this craziness because like so much has been happening yeah for folks who are tuning in um we are recording on the day after the new president-elect was announced so it's been a high energy high emotion weekend and we just <laughs> needed this brown girl cave or cove to retreat into and mm -hmm. just talk about writing and poetry um so yeah, yeah super awesome so excited for you guys to listen to this mm -hmm. yeah i hope you guys really enjoyed it and we're so happy that we were able to put out a little bonus episode for you guys um but yeah we are really excited to come back in 2021 um, holla new year new yeah. us new president what's up yeah all right send them off y'all this podcast was written and produced by radlame banting and anushka dar Audio edited by Anushka Dar and marketing done by Rodlin May Banting. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Brown Girls Journal. That's B R W N G R L S Journal. Background music provided by Epidemic Sound. And our logo was illustrated by Molly Caroline Designs.